Escape pod. Two hundred and one. Today's story. Harry the Crow. By John Cradman. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your guest host, Norm Sherman. Norm Sherman? Who the frickin' crap is that? I thought this was Escape Pod. What the hell's going on? Where's Steve Ely? Where's the promo for Audible.com? Where'd I put my car keys? What the hell is a chupacaber? Just settle down, people. It's okay. We'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming next week. But this week, you're safely nestled in the damp, pungent, hirsute arms of Uncle Norm. I narrate and produce stories in a quirky little flash fiction podcast called The Drabblecast, which brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners. What an honor to be hosting one of the most badass podcasts around. I could totally abuse this privilege right now and go into some of the glaring plot holes in the new Star Trek movie, or tell you about some of the fine products that you might be interested in that I represent through Amway. But no, this is a quality show, and I will fight the urge to sell you excellent personal care products and dietary supplements to bring you a really damn good story. Our story this week is called Harry the Crow by John Cratman. John is a husband and the father of triplet girls. When he's not busy spending time with his family, he's a full-time techno-bureaucrat. He lives in Rhode Island. John's fictions appeared in Jim Bain's universe, Aeon's speculative fiction, Dark Recesses, and many others. Check out his website and blog at johncratman.com. The story is read to you by a voice that you've probably already had too much of. He's a writer, musician, and storyteller, and all of your mom's weekly voted him the most well-endowed podcaster in May 1997. Competition was pretty slim back then, if you, if you catch my... Anyways, so stretch out your forelegs and grab a cup of coffee, because it's story time. Harry the Crow by John Cratman A construct is no crow, Tommy shouted, the ridiculous war bonnet he'd worn to my father's funeral slipping off his head. He pushed it back with an angry swipe of his hand, glaring at the gathered members of the tribe, daring them to laugh. Harry can do everything a man can do, I said. There were many people in the lodge that I recognized, but there were many more, ghosts of my past, who should have been there and were not. He can hunt, write poetry, sing a song. He can think and he can feel. I taught him how to shoot and how to track, how to read and how to write. No matter that he sprang from my brain instead of my manhood, he is my son and the only one this old man will ever have. He is a crow. What can a machine know of tradition and honor? 
Tommy asked, his lined face veiled in the shadows cast by the fire. He drew a pipe from his pocket and packed it with angry jabs of his age-spotted hand. <laughs> he knows more of honor than you do, you stupid old fool, to hold a grudge over a woman for twenty years. He had never forgiven me for that girl. So long ago. I don't recall her name, but it had been a simple thing. A man, a woman, a bottle, and a cold night. Tommy's jealousy still rode him like a demon. Stupid to throw away a lifelong friendship over something so small. Harry chuckled, tucking his six legs beneath him. It's not like I'm a Sue. His voice was deep and careful, somehow fitting, I thought, for a construct that resembled a clockwork spider. He was almost four feet high, with a long neck and a saucer-shaped head dominated by a single eye. I made him from discarded components in the body of a general mechanic's clean drone. I spent many long hours and plenty of medicine piecing him together on my nights off from the university, back when I dreamed the white man's dream. My father is dead. I sat back in my chair, sighed, and rubbed my eyes. The tribe needs a new shaman, and I am here, but my son must stay with me. No! Tommy's lips drew back. I say no! He looked around for support, and a few of his fellows nodded in agreement. You do not speak for everyone here, Tommy, I said. Long ago I had counted coups with my father and became a chief of the tribe. If you would refuse Harry, do it for a reason, not over a love affair grown thirty years cold. The eldest of the chiefs, my father's friend, kicks the coyote, spoke. A hundred winters had etched his face into a wrinkled ruin, but his tiny black eyes still shone with wisdom and cunning. Chester Laughing Crow says the machine has the spirit of a crow. Let him prove it by counting four coups, before summer brings the buffalo back to the valley. A murmur rang through the tribe. And if Harry fails, I asked, I wouldn't stay without my son. It was Tommy that answered, Then he leaves this place for good. They wouldn't let Harry stay at the lodge, so he camped on a hill about a mile north. It was cold, damn cold. I had lived in the city too long. But the stars, they shone above Yellowstone Valley like nowhere else on the steel and cement-jacketed earth. Maybe we should go back to the university, Pop. A mechanical hand tipped each of Harry's six legs. He picked up a stick and poked at the fire. Nobody wants me here. I rummaged through my pack and took out a pipe that my father had left for me. Heck no, boy. This is our home. Harry nodded, but I could tell he wasn't sure. What is counting coup? <laughs> it's a magical thing. I watched the fire and felt the years slipping away, back to the time I had counted coup with my father, before my urge to see the modern world had driven a spike between us.
A coup is an act of bravery. By tradition, a brave must count four to be a chief of the tribe and sit in council. You did it? Yeah, a long time ago. A wolf howled in the distance, and one by one her packmates added their own voices until the hills echoed with their call. My father helped me. What do I have to do? <laughs> well, first you must steal a fine horse from an enemy. I couldn't help but smile, thinking of my own first coup, my heart hammering in my chest, the nervous stamp of the horse and the burning heat of its body under me as I rode away, shouting in triumph at the moon. Steal a horse? How the heck am I going to do that? I looked down at the pipe and rubbed the scratches that my father and grandfather before me had made. Many generations. Many coups. I heard Tommy say he was going to Norris tomorrow. There's a window in the back of the lodge that opens in on the tribe's kitchen. It's a huge place, the kind of place where they cook enough food to feed an army every day, three times a day, 365 days a year. It gets real hot in there, and most of the time the cooks leave the window open. I handed Harry a few pills my doctor had given me a while back. Just drop them in the coffee, boy. I twined my fingers together and knelt to help Harry up. I don't know, Pop. You sure it won't hurt him? He put one of his legs into my hands, and I pushed him up towards the window. He doesn't weigh much. He's mostly plastic. Oh, you worry too much. Tommy's a putz. A good cleansing'll do him good. I gave him a final heave, and his legs scrabbled against the wood siding. Then he was gone. A few seconds ticked by, and he stuck his head out and whispered, Yeah, but what about everyone else who drinks the coffee? Oh, screw them if they can't take a joke. I took out my pipe and laughed, thinking that the tribe's bathrooms were going to be busy for a while. I took a look in the main dining room's window. Tommy was still there, tapping his fingers on the table and waiting for his coffee. Holy God, what the hell is that thing? Someone cried out from inside. I dropped my tobacco pouch and turned around in time to see Harry leap out the window and over my head. Run for it, Pop! They saw me! We ran around the corner and I struggled to catch my breath. Harry could move darn fast when he wanted to. Did they see you spike the coffee? I don't think so. Harry craned his neck around the corner to see if anyone was coming. Doesn't look like they followed us. All right, let's get up to the trail. About an hour later, Tommy rode past our campsite, steam shooting from his horse's nostrils. He was grim-faced and shifted uncomfortably in the saddle. We hid in the brush and watched him pass. There was a lodge in Norris that he visited every week, Kicks the Coyote had told me. He made it about another quarter mile before he stopped, wrapped his reins around a low tree branch, and ran into the woods like a demon was chasing him. Well, you see it, boy. Go get it. Don't screw the pooch, I said, clapping him on his hindquarters. It's a horse, Pop. Not a dog, he said, crawling forward through the brush. The mare smelled him and whinnied, pulling against its reins. I heard a branch snap, and the mare galloped off into the woods, stopping a few hundred yards away. Tommy's head poked up from the bushes, and he shuffled out, his pants around his ankles. 
I see you, you bastard, he cried, shaking his fist at Harry, who seemed undecided as to what to do next. I stood up and shouted, Go, Harry, go! Harry skittered into the clearing, and Tommy tried to block his path, tripping over his pants and landing face first into the mud. Harry chuckled and made a series of twenty-foot leaps, landing square in the terrified mare's saddle. His front two legs reached out and grabbed the reins, and his bottom two elongated into the stirrups and pressed against her ribs, steadying her. His middle legs retracted into his torso, and he looked almost like a man, ready to ride off into that lonely sunset. The white war paint I had applied to his chassis into his front sensor array glinted in the failing daylight. He hauled back on the reins, drawing the horse to a stop. He raised his foreleg to me in salute and shot off into the twilight. Kix the Coyote sent a few men to the campsite later that night to introduce themselves and congratulate Harry on his first coup. They gave him a hand-worked bridle for his new horse. They also brought a bottle and stuck around to help me drink it. You should have seen the look on Tommy's face. Kix the Coyote's grandson, Jimmy Redfoot, was an easy man to spot. He was the only fellow on the whole reservation with red hair. All covered in mud and shaken. I've never seen that old bastard so pissed. I have. I took a pull on the bottle and passed it back to Jimmy, smiling so hard it hurt. Still, it feels good to burn his britches, though. Why does Tommy hate you so much, Chester? Jimmy couldn't keep his eyes off Harry. He had never been off the reservation, so he'd never seen a construct before. Well, there's not much to tell, really, I said. We were friends once. Then there was this girl. She liked me more than him. You get the idea. Yeah, Jimmy said, taking another drink. Jimmy's two friends laughed for some reason I couldn't fathom. I know exactly what you mean. What's the joke? There's this guy looking for me. Big, mean, wants to kill me. Jimmy ran his hands through his orange hair. How come? Harry asked. One of Jimmy's friends, I don't remember his name, answered. His wife just had a baby. Let me guess, I said. Red hair? Jimmy nodded and took another drink. Well, you can't run away from it, I said. You have to go to him, try to work it out. If that doesn't work, you need to settle it, man to man. That kid is yours. You need to be a part of his life. Hey, Jimmy, he's going to be at the Norris dance tonight with Mabel and the baby, Jimmy's friend said, his face mock serious. Maybe you can talk to him there. That's a great idea, I said. Me and Harry will go down there with you. Talk to him first. We will? The light from the campfire played across Harry's sensor array. I had attached a single feather beside his eye to signify his first coup. Yep. I put a hand on Jimmy's shoulder. Harry will make sure you don't get hurt. Jimmy looked Harry up and down, apparently unconvinced. He didn't look all that substantial, just a few bits of metal and plastic cobbled together into a lightweight body. How's he gonna do that? Don't worry. Harry has strong medicine. I smiled. We finished the bottle and rode to Norris together. This lodge was a hotel before Congress ceded Yellowstone to the Crows in 2053, 
I told Harry. We looked down at the three-story log building, bathed in the moonlight. Smoke billowed from a number of separate chimneys, and the flags of the three tribes ruffled on their poles in the autumn wind. Jimmy and his buddies went in first, eager to reach the bar, but Harry and I took our time. There were four front doors, set side by side, and they opened into a massive entry hall. The ceilings stretched up three floors, and stairways made of lodgepole pine lined the edges. They led into the old guest rooms that now served as living quarters for the tribe. Wow! Harry turned to take in the whole space. It was filled with people. Bars had been set up at the four corners, and a huge fire burned in the open-sided fireplace in the center of the room. Yeah, it's something, ain't it? I led him to one of the bars and ordered a drink. Now what am I supposed to do, Pop? A number of people caught sight of Harry and stopped, slack-jawed, to stare at him. A few pointed, and gradually the noise of laughing and talking wound down to a low murmur. Hi, everyone. I waved and whispered to Harry. The second coup, boy. He must lead a band of braves in victorious combat, without a loss of life. Combat? <laughs> yep. There's gonna be a fight. Just wait and see. We didn't wait long. Little John had been looking for Jimmy for days. He was a huge man, almost as wide as he was tall, his hair woven into two long braids. He bellowed an indistinguishable word, and Jimmy burst out of the crowd like a frightened jackrabbit. Help! Jimmy flew behind me and clutched my shoulder. The crowd parted as if someone had cracked it in two, and Little John, his hands twisted into claws, stepped out. His jaw was clenched tight, and his face was beat red. Go talk to him, boy, I said. Jimmy was behind me still, trying to fold in on himself and disappear. Uh, okay, Pop. Harry took a step forward. Excuse me, Mr. Little John, sir? The huge man stopped, taken aback at the sight of the strange little machine that stood in his path. My Pop says I should talk to you. Harry looked back at me. I smiled and waved him on. Jimmy is my friend, and... He stopped. Little John wrapped his massive hand around Harry's neck and lifted him into the air. Your friend is he? He punctuated each rumbling syllable by shaking Harry back and forth. The crowd around the two drew back further. Well, yeah. Harry raised his forelegs so they rested on Little John's hand. He's gonna kill Harry! Jimmy's nails were digging through my jacket. Nah, watch. I reached up and peeled his fingers away from my shoulder. Harry can take care of himself. Long arcs of electricity burst from Harry's forelegs. Little John screamed and dropped him to the floor. Harry landed on his back, and he had to rock back and forth before he was able to struggle to his feet. See? I said. Cattle prods. Little John shook his head and rushed at Harry in a rage. Harry skittered aside, and Little John's hands found nothing but air. Mr. Little John, can't we talk about this? Little John took another step towards Harry, but stopped, his eye catching sight of Jimmy standing behind me. He smiled, an evil thing, his smile. He stalked toward him, oblivious to the fact that I stood in his way. 
The floor of the lodge shook with each of his footsteps, and Jimmy pulled at my shoulder. Chester, Chester, come on, let's get out of here. Little John's shadow fell over us. It seemed that a grizzly bear stood there, its features blotted out by the great lights behind it. A shadow bear about to maim both of us. Pop! Harry jumped up on Little John's head. He grasped his huge chin and pulled it to the side, dragging him to a halt as if he were a horse. Run for it! I smiled and looked over my shoulder at Jimmy. See, don't worry. Then I saw him. Behind Little John, his silly war bonnet still on his head, stood Tommy Longbarrel. He had an old stag-handled beer mug in his hand, and he drew it back to his ear to throw it. No, Tommy, don't! The heavy mug struck Harry square in the head, and he toppled from his perch atop Little John's shoulders. Jimmy momentarily forgotten, Little John grasped a heavy oaken chair and raised it over his head, intending to smash it down on Harry. Jimmy brushed past me faster than I could blink. He threw himself at Little John, driving a shoulder into his stomach. Dove! The chair fell to the side and splintered. Little John toppled to the floor, and Jimmy crawled up his prone body and poked him in the eye. Ow! Tommy Longbarrel moved closer. He picked up a leg of the broken chair and made his way over to clobber Harry with it. Tribal PD! Jimmy, Harry, Tommy, and Little John were buried under a pile of police bodies. The party broke up just as it was starting to get good. The tribal cops had a hell of a time getting Little John into the drunk wagon. He was heavy. I went to the little jailhouse after them. That your construct in there, Chester? The cop chief asked. He's my son. I dropped my credit card on the front desk. Good-looking kid. Thanks. You gonna bail them all out? The cop asked. I looked over the drunk tank. Little John, Harry, and Jimmy had their arms around each other, laughing and hollering. Tommy sat by himself in the corner. The cops had taken his war bonnet. Yeah, why not? The third coup. A brave must strike an opponent with a coup stick. It took me a while to find him, but I finally located a Sioux close by that Harry could wallop. I mean, yeah, he was eighty years old, and yeah, he was in San Francisco, but counting coup on a real live Sioux would give Harry powerful medicine. So we took Harry's new horse, which he renamed Nellie, and my old horse, Paint, on the three-hundred-mile journey from our lodge to the nearest starport in Idaho Falls, Idaho. And from there, it was just a quick flight to San Francisco, or Paris, or anywhere in the galaxy, really. It took us four weeks to get there. I arranged for a couple of friends in town to watch the horses for us while we were gone. Someone might steal them there, but that was to be expected in Crow Country. There was always somebody counting coups. The Starport Terminal was as anonymous and plain as any I'd ever seen— the same white walls, the same courteous constructs, and the same press of people. The only clue to a traveler that he was near the land of the crow was a couple of guys decked out in feathers, hamming it up for the tourists, and charging them ten credits a pop for a picture. I bought two tickets on the shuttle to San Francisco. In just a few minutes, we were there. I gave the address to a uniformed construct at the gate, and he hailed an auto-taxi for us. Have a pleasant journey, gentlemen. He held the door of the taxi open and waved as we drove away. 
I set the auto taxi to wait for us in front of the senior's home. The lobby was painted in soothing pastels and tinny music blasted from hidden speakers. To our left, the sound of muttering old-timers spilled out of a large common room. A multitude of houseplants of all shapes and sizes filled the place, giving it the appearance of some forgotten jungle inhabited by wrinkled and sleeping pygmies. Harry crouched on all sixes. The two feathers he'd earned so far hung from his sensor array, and a fresh coat of paint made him look quite fierce. He reached up with his forelegs, and I handed him the coup stick, resplendent in the feathers that each of the men of my line had added to it, one at a time. Take this, my son, and make me proud, I said. He took it from me with deep reverence. He cried and spun down the hall like some fantastically large flea. His eye darted around the room and fell upon a single old man, stoically playing parcheesi with an even older woman in the false jungle of ferns and spider plants. Silver rings covered both their hands, and they had feathers poking here and there out of their tired bathrobes. The old Sioux looked up at Harry rushing at him with no more emotion than a bull buffalo regarding a charging rabbit. Harry touched him on the shoulder with a coup stick. He shook the stick in the air. We ran for it, whooping as we went to the front door and toward the taxi. Behind me, I heard the old man grunt. I caught his eye when I opened the door for Harry and winked at him. He turned back to the old woman. Third time this year, he said. Damn crows. For the final coup, Harry needed to wrest a weapon from an enemy. Nobody had stolen our horses while we were in San Francisco, a small miracle in crow country. It was a long trip back to the lodge, so we spent some time grooming and feeding them before we set off. The weather was cold and our progress was slow. Snow pelted us from time to time and the wind smelled of the coming winter. Thousands of buffalo and a few elk ranged about, looking for the last of the green shoots buried in the snow. One day we camped by a lake, where a few wood ducks splashed about in a small section of unfrozen water. Harry lit a fire with a piece of flint and his knife. I had matches for my pipe, but it was good practice for him. Besides, I'd be damned if my son couldn't light a fire without a match. When he was finished, he came and wrapped a heavy fur around my shoulders. Thank you, my son, I said, putting my hand on his head and leaving it there for a long moment. I gave him a little push away, pointing at the spot opposite me, across the fire. I lit my pipe and puffed. Harry lit his own, carefully watching me and copying my movements. He had no lungs, but smoking is a good way to clear your head, so Harry did it anyway. In the beginning, I said pointing the stem of my pipe at the ducks. The creator, Old Man Coyote, came upon a group of ducks and asked them, Who amongst you is the bravest? One of the ducks came forward, and Old Man Coyote said to him, Go to the bottom of that lake and bring up some mud. From it, I'll see what I can make. So the duck dove in and disappeared. When he had not come up for a long time, the creator sent the other ducks, one at a time, until the last finally emerged with a bit of mud on its bill. 
Old Man Coyote dried it in his hands and blew on it, and when he opened his hand, the crow came forth. He taught us how to hunt and kill the buffalo, and how to use each of its parts to make all manner of good things. From the stomach could be made vessels for water, from the hide could be made clothing, from the bones many tools. He told them that he made us few in number, but brave. He said if he made us too numerous, we would destroy the other peoples he created. We were silent for a while, smoking. What happened to the ducks, Pop? He asked, after a time. Well, the old stories don't say, but I can't imagine that old man Coyote didn't take care and reward them for their bravery, I said, pointing once more to the frolicking ducks, shaking the water from their feathers. For who has a better life than ducks? They are at home in the lake, woods, and sky. They live long and travel far, bound to neither rock, stream, nor cloud. I closed my eyes and heard the sounds of winter, a songbird in the lodgepole pines, the rushing water of a nearby stream, the wind in my ears, the beating of my own heart. I smelled the good earth and the snow and the droppings of the buffalo. Harry passed the night in silence, and I let him be. He needed a rest from the ramblings of an old man. He needed to let his true self come to the surface, his crow self. Crow country had a knack for showing a man who he truly was. It did not matter that Harry was a construct rather than a human being. He was made by me, and there is more to fatherhood, to family, to tribe, than mere blood. The next day, the snow fell harder. We stopped to admire a valley painted orange by the sunrise. We looked at the snow-capped mountains, at the buffalo and elk, and at the brilliance of the sun. I dreamed of Old Man Coyote last night, Harry said. I had written dreaming into his programming, fashioned from random bits of his daily experiences and the traditional tales of our people. A few of the people at the university had laughed when I told them of it, but they were blind to many things. Dreams are powerful medicine. He told me to stay close to you today, to walk on your right side as we pass through the valley. He said that I would hold an enemy's weapon in my hands and be a chief of the tribe before the sun sets once more on the land of the crow. Hmm. Powerful medicine. Heed your dream then, son, and walk on your old father's right hand. We rode on, giving the buffalo calves and bulls a wide berth. They don't like it when men get too close. We had traveled about ten miles before I heard the shot. A high-pitched whine reverberated from a nearby hilltop. A homing bullet ricocheted off Harry's chest plate and struck me in the shoulder, knocking me from my saddle. I hit the frozen earth and felt a bone in my leg snap. Harry jumped from his horse, our first aid kit in one hand. The buffalo, slowly at first, began to run. Fear spread through the herd like a fever until hundreds of them were thundering across the meadow in a panic. Harry stood over me, the stun guns on his arms crackling. He shocked a couple of bulls that got too close, just enough to send them careening off in a different direction. 
In a few moments, they had all disappeared into the snow and fog, driving our spooked horses with them. Harry knelt in front of me and tore my shirt over the bullet wound. Ah, it burns, I said through clenched teeth. And I think I broke my damn leg. Yep, it's broke all right. Let's look at the bullet. His sensor array turned crimson as he switched to thermal infrared. Deflecting off of me must have taken away most of its power. It's lodged just beneath your skin. Yank the damn thing out of there. Then you'll need to put a splint on my leg. This is gonna hurt, Pop. He gave me a hypo full of anesthetic from our first aid kit. Okay, go on, I said. The pain began to subside. His foreleg sprouted a tiny robotic hand designed for fine work. He dug it into the wound and pulled the bullet out. He regarded it for a moment before dropping it into the snow. It burned straight through to the frozen earth beneath. I looked around the valley, lightheaded, trying to see the poacher who was taking pot shots at the buffalo. I knew it was no crow. We didn't use those crummy homing rifles. Damned toys. A real man, a crow, used a real rifle. And if he wasn't a crow, he was a poacher. There were people in the world who would pay big money for poached buffalo organs. I think I got em, I heard off to the east. Pop, they're coming! Steady, Harry. Steady, boy. I want you to get out of here. Find the horses. Our rifles were with the horses. I'm not leaving you. These guys could hurt you. That's why I want you out of here. You'll be safe, and they won't know you're here, boy. I winked at him. Find the horses. Get your rifle. It's up to you. Harry's red eye scanned the horizon. He hesitated a moment longer, touched my shoulder with his foreleg, and vanished into the fog. Excuse me, I called. You got a person up here. In a moment, I could see them. City folk, three of them, all dressed up like fools for hunting. They were breaking the law by hunting on the reservation, doubly so for hunting our buffalo. They got closer, and I smelled that they were drunk, too. Aw, oh, shit, look at this, an old Indian geezer. What are you doing out here, old man, little far from town? The yahoo was all covered in orange so his drunken buddies wouldn't accidentally blow his head off. Shut up, Fred. This was from the oldest of the three. Well, this really complicates things. What's complicated, Tony? Let's just leave him. Oh, sure. Now that he's gotten a good look at us, the cops will be on us like flies on shit. Oh, shit, Fred said. He pulled a bottle from his pocket and took a pull. You boys don't need to worry about me. I won't say anything to anyone, I said in my best old man's voice. I slipped my hand inside my coat and wrapped my fingers around the staghorn handle of my knife. Tony turned to the third man, a tall, blonde fellow with ice-blue eyes. He had a high-powered rifle, a real man's gun. Well, what do you think, Carl? Do we leave him or what? Carl reached over and took the bottle from Fred's hand. He wiped off the neck and took a long drink. Kill him, 
There won't be nothing but bones left by a spring, and we'll be long gone. I ain't gonna kill a helpless old man, Fred said. Shut up, Fred, Tony said. He took a step forward and raised his crummy homing rifle in my direction. It was the last thing he ever did. A rifle cracked somewhere in the fog. It could have been a hundred or a thousand feet away. Harry could shoot a fly in the ass from a mile off. Tony dropped his rifle and clutched his throat. Blood ran from between his fingers. He dropped to his knees and fell face first in the snow. Holy shit! A large wet spot bloomed out in front of Fred's pants. He dropped his rifle and ran. Carl dropped onto his belly. He crawled over me and took the clip out of his rifle and inserted another. If the new clip had explosive bullets, it could hurt Harry badly. Carl moved with expert casualness. Come on out, he yelled into the fog, or I kill the old man. He pointed the rifle at me and pulled the bolt back. Don't do it, boy, I said. He's going to kill me anyway. Carl ground the barrel into my nose. Open your mouth again, and you're dead. All right, mister. Don't shoot. I'm coming out. Harry walked out of the fog, forelegs raised towards the sky. Jesus Christ, a construct. Carl took the rifle out of my face and pointed it at Harry as he stood up. I don't know what you're doing out here, but it's the end of the line. He took careful aim at my son. In an instant, I buried my knife into his calf. Carl got off his shot before he collapsed, and I saw the red disc of Harry's sensor array shatter into a thousand fragments. The stun guns on the ends of his forelegs erupted with crackling electricity, and he jumped with perfect accuracy, despite his blindness. He landed on top of Carl and drove the tips into his ribs. Harry's scream made me clap my hands over my ears. I could see through my tears that Carl was screaming too, but I couldn't hear it. Harry, enough boy, you'll kill him! I wasn't sure if he heard me, but after a moment he stopped screaming and pulled the tips of his forelegs away from Carl. He was unconscious, and little tendrils of smoke rose from his hair. Doesn't he deserve to die, Pop? He was gonna kill you. He was going to kill me. He came here to take our buffalo from us, to kill them, to sell them for money. Enough blood has been spilled today, boy. I reached over and dragged Carl's rifle toward me. Look, you've wrested a weapon from an enemy. You're a chief now. I can't look, Pop. I'm blind. Well, we'll fix that when we get back to the lodge. I'll be your eyes for now. The horses wandered over to us after a while, and Paint stuck her nose in my face, anxious to get a move on. What about him? Harry asked, kicking Carl in the ribs. His eye was gone, but there was nothing wrong with his memory. He had a perfect image of his surroundings based on the picture in his mind just before Carl shot him. Drag him over here. I reached over, ignoring the reawakening pain in my shoulder and leg, and untied his bootlaces. I tied them together and held them out to Harry, touching his forelegs with them. Throw these up in the tree, Harry. He wound up and threw them toward the highest branches. A clueless son of a whore should be able to climb up there and get them down before he freezes to death. 
and he'll think twice before he comes back to the Crow Nation. Get my knife. Shoot some flesh foam into his wound and wrap a bandage around it, Harry. I must have fallen asleep after that, because when I awoke, my leg was splinted, and Harry had me in front of him on his horse. Either his GPS was still working, or Nellie knew the way home. I limped into the great hall of the lodge, my hand on Harry's head. A hush fell over the gathered members of the tribe. The lights were dim, and a fire burned low in the hearth. The tribal chiefs sat in a half-circle before the fire, each dressed in their finest clothes. Harry and I stopped in the center of the crescent. My legs still ached from the regeneration unit. Four feathers were tied to Harry's new sensor array. In his forelegs he carried the automatic rifle he had taken from Carl in the valley. Jimmy had given him a painted leather bag, and he wore it hung across his back. He stepped forward a few paces and laid the gun gently on the hand-woven rug. Tommy Longbarrel stood up and hefted the rifle, his face as impassive as a stone. He turned it over in his hands. <laughs> he gave it to Kix the Coyote, who passed it to his right without looking at it. Tell us the tale of your coups, he said. I stole the horse of my enemy, Harry said and he told the tale of the laxatives and the horse and the broken branch. I led a band of braves in victorious combat, he said, and he told the story of the great battle at the lodge and the triumph of an enemy beaten and befriended. I smote my enemy with a coup stick, and he told them of San Francisco and the Sioux and Parcheesi. I wrested a weapon from the tribe's enemies. Harry pointed at the gleaming black rifle, and told them the tale of the ducks, and the bullet that burned through snow, and the boots hanging in the tree. When he finished the telling, Harry stepped back and sat at my feet, his six legs folded beneath him. A great silence once again filled the hall. The chiefs looked at Tommy, and he met each of their gazes, one at a time. No one spoke. Tommy looked at the floor his chin in his hand. I say, a machine is no crow. He fixed me with an icy stare. Then, an amazing thing happened, a thing I had not seen in over thirty years. A smile cracked his face. But this is no machine. This is the son of Chester Laughing Crow. A thunderous cheer shook the hall. The booze went to my head, and I stepped outside to get some air. The moon was full, and inky purple shadows danced on the snow. A coyote padded at the edge of the woods, vanishing and reappearing like a spirit. The party was in full swing, and loud voices, muffled in the night's stillness, rose and fell from inside. My head was buzzing nicely, and I smiled, truly happy, for myself, for Harry, for Tommy. The click of one of the lodge's many doors made me turn. Bright light spilled out into the night, cutting the shadows like a knife. The noise of the party rose for a brief instant, then fell when the door was shut again. Harry stepped out into the moonlight. 
I opened my mouth to speak, but stopped without knowing why. Instead of calling out, I stepped back into the shadows. Harry took the leather bag from his shoulders and took out something I could not quite see. He drew back one of his forelegs, and a dark shadow spun from his outstretched hand to land a hundred feet away in the thick snow of the wood. Harry looked around, but he didn't see me. He turned and went back into the lodge, shutting the door quickly behind him. I limped up the hill. The snow was up to my waist when I reached the hole in the snow. I reached down into the hole and felt something hard and bumpy. I grabbed it and pulled it out, my fingers almost frozen. It was a pair of hunting boots, the ones I'd told Harry to throw into the tree. I stared at them for a long time, oblivious to the cold. It had never really occurred to me before, but perhaps I had wrought too well. My son was human. Somewhere in Lamar Valley, under a few feet of snow, the bones of his enemy lay. Ah, the rite of passage. Any creator will tell you, even if your duck can shoot a fly in the ass, He's not a crow till he bludgeons a geriatric. I'll let wiser men debate the themes of this story, what it means to be human, what it means to be part of a community, and tell you what I glean from the story. Ducks really do have it better. No. Also, a cool idea explored here is tradition in the face of changing technology. I did a song recently on Drabblecast that follows these lines, and I thought I might play it for you nice folks at the end of the show. It's kind of a celebration of the Hubble telescope and America's coming of age in the space race. First, though, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, share it with the rest of the tribe or have your construct blog about us. If you really liked it, consider donating via the PayPal options on the website. Times are tough. But they'd be a lot tougher without a skate pod, wouldn't they? Help a brother out. Check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod, if you like horror, and Podcastle, if you like fantasy. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. Our closing quotation this week is from an old Native American proverb, a personal favorite of mine. Do not blame God for having created the tiger, but thank him for not having given it wings. Russia, it's me, your arch nemesis. We the G's overseas with Mickey D stains on our T's. With luxuries like you wouldn't believe. We got more ringtones on our iPhones than China's got Chinese. We're America, Biatch, the land of the free. We gave you Michael Bolton and Jurassic Park 3. Our soccer teams suck and our beers taste like pee pee. But our rhymes are so fat they get type 2 diabetes. But enough about us. How come you ain't been calling me? I guess you're trying to stabilize your volatile economy. Preoccupied nationwide with new domestic policies. Psych.
like, yeah, right. I know you're trying to follow me. You've been disgraced in the space race. Trying to save face after coming in second place. Just another case. Victory. Chase history. Ace Kennedy. But you lost pace with your enemy. And now you're laying low, plotting for as long as we've known you. You try to hold your head up like Neil Armstrong didn't pwn you. That secret space ride that you're trying to hide isn't something I would publicize with any pride. I'll tell you why. We be pimping the Hubble tonight. Put them 20-inch rims on spinning round right. Got the chrome on the dubs, got the sub stumping bass. New spectrograph camera taking pictures of space. Got tricked out subsystems bouncing hydraulics. Don't need any of it. It's purely symbolic. Step up your product. You gotta get on it cause we be ballin' with the telescope that rules even harder than Lennon or Stalin. Don't fight us. Our shit is tightest. The satellite is always packed with cuties and booties that all delighted. Screaming, we are so excited. You got that right. Cause you in orbit on a craft that's unrivaled. What you got, Russia? What you been launching lately? Some hoopty ass Sputnik looking thing second rate. Like your older sister Debbie who I took on a date to the Golden Corral. When the bill came, I made her pay. Oh, silly me. I left my wallet in my cabriolet. I ordered steak. Hope that's okay. Now go away. Cause you look like Kathy Bates on a bad day. Blase. Even put your satellite to shame. Had enough? I can mix it up again. I can flip it. I can rip it any way you want, motherland. You can't cope. Cause our telescope's so dope. You know there's no hope. End of the rope. End of the show. Go home. Thanks for playing Russia. Here's some stories for the road. And don't forget your coat when you go. Cause it's so damn cold back home. All that snow. Like 23 degrees below. Here we go. We be pimping the Hubble tonight. Put them 20 inch rings on. Spinning round right. Got the chrome on the dubs. Got the subs thumping bass. New spectrograph camera taking pictures of space. Got tricked out subsystems bouncing hydraulics. Don't need any of it. It's purely symbolic. Step up your product. You gotta get on it. Cause we be bottom with a telescope that rules even harder than Lenin or Stalin. We be pimping the Hubble tonight. Put them 20 inch rings on. Spinning round right. Got the chrome on the Dubs, got the subs, dumping bass, new spectrograph camera, taking pictures of space. Got tricked out subsystems, bouncing hydraulics. Don't need any of it. It's purely symbolic. Step up your product. You gotta get on it, cause we'll be ballin' with a telescope that rules even harder than Lennon or Stalin. USSR, where you at? Don't hate the player, hate the game, Russia.